is the fall line. Atlanta, 1989. Ground is broken on the Georgia Dome, which will one day be the home of the Falcons. The movie Driving Miss Daisy, which was shot in our city, premieres in theaters. Down south in Savannah, a man named Jim Wells is acquitted of the murder of a male sex worker. You might remember him from Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Emmanuel Hammond is formally charged with the murder of Julie Love, a midtown Atlanta resident who ran out of gas on her way back from a business meeting. And at Grady Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia, Janquia Brooks is born. Within two weeks, she'll be readmitted with meningitis. Because of her age, she's hospitalized in the nursery. And within two days, she disappears. And then, Atlanta, 1993. The Atlanta Braves can't be stopped. Construction has begun on the Centennial Olympic Stadium, and Georgia's cleanup and gentrification efforts are in high gear. March brings what's called the storm of the century. Georgia's hit with nearly two feet of snow, and among the six-foot drifts, Atlanta grinds to a halt. There are only a handful of snowplows to serve the entire city. Something else happens in March, too. Tavish Sutton, born in February, is checked into Grady's Hugh Spaulding Children's Hospital for a minor abscess surgery. He's living with foster parents, but the permanency of the placement is unclear. Hours into his recovery, a nurse checks in on him. By the time she makes her way back around to check again, he's gone. Two babies gone in four years. And there was another between them who we've taken to calling Baby X and on whom there is no information available. We can't even say when that infant was taken, except that the year was 1992. As in the case of Janquia, the kidnapper was a juvenile, so without the necessary context to provide details on Baby X, we're left with 1989 and Janquia and 1993 and Tavish. Janquia was recovered in 24 hours. Tavish is still missing today. We're able to tell you their stories thanks to the Atlanta Police Department, who shared their files on both cases. Media coverage for Janquia was mostly broadcast on local television, and today there are only three articles available that even mention her case. Tavish has received more coverage, but the details are still spare. Without APD, this episode would not have been possible. It's a welcome change. On September 5, 1989, Janquia Brooks was recovering in Grady's nursery. Her mother Janice had visited that evening and her paternal grandmother had been in the day before. Her maternal grandmother had not visited in person but continually rang the ward to check in on the infant. It was actually her call that led nurses to check on Janquia and discover her kidnapping. Janquia had been transported to Grady via ambulance. Twelve days after her birth, she had spiked a 104-degree fever and was suddenly, desperately ill. Her father, Willie Glanton, was serving a sentence with Fulton County, and her mother, Janice Brooks, had to take that ambulance ride alone. 
Once she made it to the hospital, Janquia was quickly diagnosed with meningitis. Based on what we've gleaned from a few scattered reports, Janice was not able to stay with her daughter. The pediatric hospital associated with Grady, Hugh Spaulding, was not operational until 1992. In its former incarnation, it had been a hospital for Black Atlantans. Grady Proper, built in 1892 as the nation's first public hospital, was white only until a redesign created wings, still segregated, for Black and white patients. Older Atlantans sometimes still call the hospital the Grady's, plural. So, Janquia ended up in the place where she'd began life, the nursery of the maternity ward, which at the time was located on the ninth floor. Today, Grady has one of the finest NICUs in the state, outfitted with webcams so parents can remain in virtual contact with their hospitalized infants. But Janquia was born in 1989 before anyone who sought regular health care Grady even had a cell phone, much less regular and reliable internet access. For updates, her family had to make do with phone calls to the nurse's station. By all accounts, Janquia was closely monitored. Her hospital records have been preserved and show evidence of extensive detailed care, what one would expect for an infant with a life-threatening illness. Her health had steadily improved and, according to the Atlanta Constitution, there were plans to release her on Wednesday, September 6. As the newspaper explained, the layout of the ward was such that the nursery was significantly separated from the nurse's station. The two areas lay at opposite ends of the hallway. The elevator was close to the nursery, maybe three or four steps away. This was later cited as a concern by Janquia's grandmother, Mamie Glanton. She is quoted as saying, quote, you could walk in the room, pick up a baby, and walk right out without anybody seeing you, unquote. There were security guards, but not on every floor. In the same article, Grady's then-spokesperson, Beverly Thomas, responded, quote, Short of stopping everybody at the door, putting in a metal detector, and restricting access to the hospital, we've done all we can do. Thomas estimated that, to fully secure Grady with guards, they'd need to hire 80 more staff members, which would be big numbers for a public hospital. It's worth noting that, with the influx of people pouring into Grady on any given night, security guards could not remain at their assigned stations or sometimes even complete their rounds. Major upsets or outbreaks of violence were not unusual. In fact, when we spoke to a former Grady ER nurse, she was able to recount many such events, including a night when she was assaulted by a patient. And I can remember working one night on the graveyard shift where I actually got punched in the nose by a patient. Um, but if you put, and it sounds bad, but if you put it in context, you understand there are a lot of homeless patients who come to Grady. They just don't have any place to go. Uh, and at night, you see a good many because they have nowhere to sleep. Uh, and back 20, 25 years ago, it was worse than it is now. So people would come to, at that time I was working in the emergency room, people would come to the emergency room and sleep in the waiting rooms, sleep in the hallways, or many times they would wander into the emergency room and get up on a stretcher. So this particular night, a, a man did come in. He was a regular. 
He had gotten up on a stretcher to go to sleep, but we needed that stretcher for a patient, somebody who was really sick. So when I went over to get him off the stretcher so he could go sit outside in the waiting room, he punched me in the face. But he did it for a reason because he knew he would get arrested. He knew he would go to jail. He would have a place to sleep. He would have food to eat. So there was a reason behind him doing it. And I understood that. I I didn't hold a grudge against him because I knew what he had done, although my nose was swollen. But I wasn't hurt very bad. And that's just one story. We couldn't find media reports from the night of September 5th that would have specifically distracted security. Then again, how many of these disturbances made the news? Whether or not security was lax, this much is true. On the evening of September 5th, a 15-year-old who we'll call Tiana was able to make her way into the hospital. She visited multiple floors and twice asked for directions to the nursery. She also spent 20 minutes in a waiting area where she alleges a male staff member made a pass at her. She was then able to make her way to the nursery, take Janquia, and leave without incident. Janquia's mother, Janice Brooks, hadn't had an easy year. Her boyfriend, Willie, was in jail. She was left to manage the bills in their Techwood Homes apartment alone, to give birth alone, to handle Janquia's sudden illness alone. And yet, the Atlanta Constitution describes Janice in a single sentence, quote, a 22-year-old unemployed high school dropout. That's the direct quote from the single 1989 article devoted to the case. What if she had been described as a young stay-at-home mother? The distance between the kidnappings at Grady and the Atlantans with the power to do something about them were made wider by each such description. The night Janquia was kidnapped, Janice visited around 6.30. She'd barely made it home when she got a call that she needed to come back to the hospital. Her baby was missing and police wanted to speak with her. There was not a composite sketch in the police file, but staff members did describe seeing a young black woman with short hair and, quote, a torn earlobe. Another nurse offered the following story as well. It has been gleaned from APD notes, so some of the details are not perfectly clear. Stick with us. It seems that this young woman approached at least one other baby. When the nurse checked in on this baby, the suspect was there and identified herself as the baby's mother. The nurse noted that per the baby's chart, the mother's age was listed as 30, and the person in front of her couldn't be older than 18. When another woman entered the room, the suspect hurriedly left. That second woman then identified herself as the baby's actual mother. The nurse reported this story to police after Janquia's abduction. Nothing in the police file verifies the suspicious young woman to be Janquia's abductor, Tiana, but it's reasonable to assume. As is routine, the police began their investigation with the family. Specifically, they began with Janice and the baby's two grandmothers, all of whom had their apartments searched. Though Willie, Janquia's father, was in custody at the time, he was also interviewed. Those inquiries would be a dead end. The kidnapper had never met the Brooks or Glanton families before. She wasn't even from Fulton County. She was a 15-year-old living in Shambly, Georgia, a suburb about 20 minutes from the city center. 
The juvenile we call Tiana's story began that morning, when she reportedly borrowed $2 to take a MARTA bus to Crawford Long Hospital. There, she unsuccessfully searched for the maternity ward. Eventually, she gave up and took another bus ride, this time to Grady. This wasn't a spur-of-the-moment trip, though. It was a solution. Tiana was facing a problem at school. Apparently, she told her classmates that she had a baby, one who was living in Ohio with relatives. Her ex-boyfriend and his new girlfriend made fun of her for this and called her a liar. They said that if she really had a baby, she should be able to prove it. So, on September 5th, Tiana set out to do just that. She was able to make it into the Grady nursery undetected. Janquia's bassinet was the closest to the door, so she was the baby Tiana chose. Tiana had planned to spend that night with a friend. Her friend's mother was surprised when Tiana showed up with a newborn in tow. At first, Tiana explained that she was babysitting, and then later the story changed. She said the baby was her mother's, who couldn't take care of the infant. Tiana implied that her mother was using cocaine. Her friend's mother had a hard time believing that story. Meanwhile, Tiana called her mother and said that someone else had asked her to babysit and said that she couldn't come home. She asked to spend the night with her friend again. Her mother was not happy with the idea. She asked her daughter to return home, but Tiana put her off. The calls went back and forth as the news media got word of Janquia's kidnapping. The mother of Tiana's friend heard the story on TV. She specifically noted the description of Janquia as wearing a hospital-issue nightshirt just like the baby who was staying at her house. She called the police. Within hours, Janquia was returned to Grady. Janice found out while she was cooking dinner. She told the Atlanta Constitution, quote, A nurse just called me and said, We've got your baby down here. Once Janquia was found, Janice wouldn't let her out of her sight. She spent the night with her at the hospital and was allowed to take her daughter home the next morning. Meanwhile, Tiana's mother gave consent for her daughter to be questioned. She is quoted in the records as saying that she wanted to get to the bottom of it, too. Tiana first spoke to officers when she was being transported to the station. She offered the explanation that she was walking down the street when a white man approached her with the baby. She alleged that he asked her to take Janquia to a local pharmacy, promising to meet them there. The man never arrived, so she decided to take the baby to her friend's home. That was her story for a while, but she eventually told the truth about the imagined baby in Ohio and the bullying she'd gotten at school. Tiana's mother told police that Tiana was, quote, out of her mind, end quote, and needed psychiatric help. We don't know if she actually received it. All we can say is that, unlike a teenager who stole a baby in 1996, Tiana was not tried as an adult. She does not have an accessible criminal record with Fulton County. She seems to live quietly. We've located her. She's still in Atlanta. At the time Janquia was abducted, there were no studies or national statistics on baby snatchings. 
In fact, a 1989 article from the Atlanta Constitution says exactly one man, Bruce Smock, was keeping track of them at all. He was the head of security at a Flint, Michigan hospital where an abduction had occurred. He soon discovered that 11 other kidnappings had occurred that year, 1988, and wanted to understand why women were stealing infants and how they accomplished it. He was astonished to learn that no one had collected or analyzed that data. Jan Quia was missing for a little over 24 hours, not even long enough for Atlanta police to launch a full investigation. We just don't know what methods they would have employed to find her. We do know how APD handled the March 1993 case of Tavish Sutton. After reviewing the six-volume file on the case, it's obvious to us that law enforcement did everything they could to find Tavish. Based on news reports, we'd assume there was not a reward in this case, but that's incorrect. The APD still has combination GBI-APD flyers on file that offer a $10,000 reward in Tavish's case. We spoke to former APD Lieutenant Danny Egan, who worked Tavish's case in 1993. Here's what he remembered. Uh, I was supervisor in charge of the, the, the homicide squad, and at that time, the missing persons unit was attached to the homicide squad. A little bit of a change had taken place at some point. Missing persons had been split up. If I'm recalling correctly, we had adult missing persons, and then you had missing persons that were juveniles, two different entities in the police department handling those crimes. Uh, the missing persons unit and the homicide squad was staffed by one detective. Now, that may sound like it was skimpy staffing, but that really was, was adequate for, for what was going on. Uh, this detective focused on missing persons. Her job was to make sure that if a report came in, that if there was something there that called attention of maybe the person who's missing is in danger, or maybe it's something other than a missing person that could be a crime, she would take necessary action to utilize resources to get a, an investigation going other than just an inquiry on why this person's missing. So we had the resources there of homicide detectives and assault detectives, which equaled about 35 detectives that we could pull from to work missing persons if in the event that we, we needed to do so. Tavis Sutton's case was, was not a missing persons case. It was a straight up kidnapping. So we, we need to make that clear. This, this wasn't treated like Tavis just got up and walked out of the hospital on his own and went out with hanging out with his friends. He was stolen. He was kidnapped. And, and this, this case was treated as a serious crime from the very beginning. <clears throat> and because of that, uh, the, the news media had a, a strong presence in uh, reporting this uh, composite photo or, or composite police artist rendering of what the baby looked like. And I think even what the, the possible suspect looked like were given to the press. And there was plenty of coverage about this particular crime. Uh, so um, it, the whole purpose of that was to try to generate leads. It was a story. And of course, um, uh, we, we, need, we needed impact, uh, input from citizens who could maybe point us in the direction of lead, you know, maybe somebody who has acquired a baby that they didn't realize was pregnant or someone that 
has came across a child and there's questions about how they got the child, uh, th this is what we were looking for. There weren't any cameras at the hospital. There wasn't anything captured on the film. It's not like it is today where there's a camera on every corner. Uh, 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 I don't remember all the specifics of this case. I don't know if anybody really got a look at the person that stole the child from the hospital or it was just somebody that may have been in the area that they suspected could have been the one. Uh, I, I don't remember enough details to tell you that we ever even had a witness that could identify who this person was. But basically the strategy on this was generate a lot of interest. Uh, hopefully somebody's going to call us and tell us, hey, you need to look at this person. They've got a child and we don't really know where the child came from. That's that's what we were banking on. Danny Agan mentions the importance of news coverage. It's what helped solve the kidnappings of Shanti Alexander, Janquia, and the other babies who were returned. When the public is made aware, they generally pitch in to help investigators by reporting things that just don't seem right. Most often, women who suddenly have infants. But if a woman had been faking a pregnancy, appearing with a new baby would be the most natural thing in the world. Tavish got his share of local coverage, though national attention would have been better. We've seen it in other cases, like that of baby Lisa Irwin, who disappeared from her parents' home in Kansas City, Missouri, in October of 2011. Her story went international. You've probably heard it covered in more than one podcast. There's also one-year-old Ayla Reynolds, who vanished while under her stepmother's care that same year. Widespread media coverage doesn't equal a resolution. After all, both those babies are still missing. But you've likely at least heard of them. They were at home with their parents. That created an immediate sense of families as victims and as suspects. Tavish's story is just a little different. Tavish Sutton entered foster care at approximately three weeks old. According to police records, there was not a relative with whom Tavish could readily be placed, so... He was assigned to a foster family with experience caring for infants. Shortly after his arrival, his foster mother noticed that he had an abscess. She alerted DFAX, who took him to Grady for treatment. Tavish was described as a particularly attractive baby, with wide eyes and a full head of curly hair. In fact, he was admired by all of the nurses who saw him at intake. A beautiful boy, they remarked, as his caseworker dropped him off. He was checked at a Hughes Spalding Children's Hospital in the first week of March as a ward of the state. Minor surgery was performed, and Tavish was given a shared room in which to recuperate. He was dressed in a flower print t-shirt, a diaper, and was wearing a hospital bracelet. Nurses fed him and checked him and dressed his wound. As far as we know, he had no visitors. His birth family was not informed that he was at the hospital. Even if they had called his mother, they wouldn't have reached her. She had been checked into Georgia Regional for mental health treatment. His roommate was checked in the night before Tavish's kidnapping. The infant, a boy, had an infected toe. This family, who we'll call the Johnsons, had caused a bit of trouble for the nursing staff. The room was not set up for parents to spend the night, but Mrs. Johnson had insisted. 
She said her husband had left for work with the only house key and that she and her daughter wouldn't be able to get inside without him. According to the nurse who last saw Tavish, when she'd looked in on him, the mother and daughter had been asleep on the couch in the room. Mr. Johnson had left early that morning. He said he'd headed home, changed for work, walked down to Marta, and at the last minute decided he was too tired to go in. He then called in from a payphone and went back home, where he took a nap in the living room. By the time he woke up, Tavish Sutton was missing, and he became, by default, a suspect. The Johnsons were thoroughly investigated by police. This included multiple polygraphs, background checks, interviews of alibi witnesses, and a check of their home. They were eventually cleared, but not before Mr. Johnson participated in several police interviews. They were not the only ones. Tavish's birth family was thoroughly investigated as well. None of these leads proved true, as far as investigators could tell. After all, the family had no clue Tavish had been in the hospital. Just how would they have arranged a kidnapping? Their homes were searched, and they were cleared. Investigators began to focus on reports of two suspicious persons who had been seen at different times. The first, a man, had appeared the night before and attempted to enter the children's wing after 8.30. This is of note because at 8.30, all visitors, parents and relatives, were required to carry yellow passes that identified them as authorized. This man, who was tall, slim, and wearing a baseball cap, had no reason to be there. He did not have a pass. Nurses described him as agitated. He disappeared before security was called. The second was a woman seen just outside the hospital. She was around 5'5 and about 160 pounds, with a medium brown complexion and hair pulled back in a large bow. She wore black pants and a long black coat and was carrying a small infant with curly hair. A man reported this sighting to police, specifically noting he remembered her because she was very attractive. Another witness saw the same woman inside the hospital, though it's unclear whether this sighting took place on the maternity wing itself. Two different forensic sketches were completed. In both, the woman has strong cheekbones and almond-shaped eyes. She wears large earrings, geometric shapes in one and hoops in the other. She looks to be about 25 years old. As Tavish's story trickled out into the news media and the local papers, the APD asked for the FBI's help on the case. Although we cannot access the FBI records, we do know that they worked with APD on a variety of leads and followed up on any and all tips that came in. One such tip regarded a woman who had been seen by a former classmate and was now dressed as if she lived on the street, walking downtown and carrying a baby. The baby was wrapped in a bright, clean hospital blanket. There were also several rumors circulating about a woman who used to hang around Grady and who, according to several of the missing person databases, was known for pretending to be pregnant, but we couldn't find any verification of the story. That idea, though, fits in with other abductors we've studied, including Louise Lett, who kidnapped Shanti Alexander. A final tip concerned a robbery that had occurred just before Tavish's disappearance and involved some individuals who were part of his extended family. The APD looked into them all. They tracked down and questioned the woman seen on the street by her classmate. Her high school yearbook photo was still in Tavish's file. They talked to the family who had been burglarized. 
They took pictures of men known to Tavish's family and created photo lineups. Eventually, they even arranged for Tavish's story to be featured on America's Most Wanted. If you were born after 1990, you might not be familiar with the series. It was a hugely popular television show hosted by John Walsh. Walsh's son Adam was kidnapped and murdered in the early 1980s, allegedly by serial killer Otis Toole. Afterward, John Walsh became deeply involved in criminal justice, victim advocacy, and supporting many families through child abductions. America's Most Wanted mostly focused on criminals who topped the FBI's Most Wanted list, but also featured unsolved crimes where the perpetrator had not been identified. Tavish's episode aired on June 23, 1993. The segment is no longer publicly available, but it apparently had some impact on the viewing audience. For the first time, phone calls began to come in from outside of Georgia. That episode would play in reruns for years, and that was lucky, because APD's investigation had been exhausted. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported Pat Johnson, a commander of the Atlanta FBI Violent Crime Squad, as saying, quote, It's pretty grim. Frankly, we're down to the leads we get from the show. And those leads trickled in for at least a decade. A woman called in from the West Coast to report a Tavish and her child's kindergarten class who had stopped attending after a re-airing of the episode. An elementary school teacher sent a series of letters in the late 90s, concerned that a secretive mother and a child who favored Tavish might be involved in the case. Others reported seeing children at stores and restaurants or moving in and out of neighborhoods. None of these children were Tavish. It's unclear whether familial DNA has been entered into CODIS, but the APD has maintained regular contact with NCMEC and other organizations that work to find missing children. Tavish's age progressions have been regularly updated. Today, he would be 25 years old. After Tavish's 1993 disappearance, his biological mother filed suit against Grady. In March of 1995, the AJC reported the suit, which, quote, claimed the hospital was negligent in not preventing the kidnapping. According to information we gathered in the civil file, there was much argument concerning the biological mother's ability to serve as plaintiff in this case. Based on the court documents, her parental rights had been in the process of being terminated when Tavish vanished. Atlanta public health attorneys felt that this precluded her from personally suing the hospital. However, she was allowed to continue her claim, and she eventually settled out of court. The AJC reports that she was awarded $600,000 in damages. As far as we can ascertain, she has not spoken publicly about Tavish's case since that settlement. To our knowledge, she is the only mother of an abducted Grady baby who has sued the hospital. Raymond's mother Donna might have had a case, but the statute of limitations has long since expired. The same is true for Sandra Alexander and the mothers of Christopher Lee, Baby X, and the infant we call Baby Y, who you'll hear more about in our next episode. We don't know what, if anything, they were told. The suit in Tavish's case was not highly publicized. Tavish was not the only Grady baby to have been kidnapped while in DFAC's custody. 
Baby Y, who was stolen and recovered in 1996, was also part of the system. And so was his mother, a minor who was living in a group home at the time of his birth. It's unclear whether she planned to put him up for adoption or whether she might have been allowed to retain rights or perhaps even gain custody when she was no longer a ward of the state. We all know foster care is imperfect. No matter one's place on the political spectrum, it's easy to recognize that we need more and better for all children who enter the system. The city's poorest residents are more likely to fill the foster care system, need public health assistance, to lack access to the transportation that could get them to better jobs or give them choice in providers. Stories like Tavish's or Janquia's are not unique to Atlanta. However, they are most prevalent in areas where people have less. Infant abduction is now less likely to occur at hospitals than ever before. But the hospitals that have been most heavily hit are filled with low-income mothers and babies. When you pinpoint the poverty, you can also pinpoint the risk. Tavish's mother seems to have had uneven support, at best, in regard to her mental health and access to medication, treatment, and support. We don't have the specific details of her diagnosis, and even if we did, we wouldn't share them here. While we can't comment specifically on her care, we can draw on national commentary on the success mothers diagnosed with schizophrenia have in parenting their children and keeping them in their care. A Greek-language article in the medical journal Psychiatric cited six major issues that can affect a woman with schizophrenia's ability to parent. The two most striking points were... One, stressful events and poor social support to the mother, and two, unrealistic parental expectations. This directly connects with many of the first-person accounts of mothers who live with mental illness. One such woman, Valerie Fox, wrote about her experience in 2004. She explained that the most damaging experience was not having the illness, but attempting to hide it so that her child would not be stigmatized, thus preventing her from seeking out care when she really needed it. Her bouts were viewed by her family and friends as nervous breakdowns, which further pushed her to obscure her symptoms. Then, alone at home with her baby, she would begin to have paranoid thoughts about the child's welfare, the health of the child, and what she might do to protect him. Because Tavish Sutton's mother declines media requests, we don't have her side of the story. All the things that the court and police records can't tell us about her experience as a mother with schizophrenia or how she was told about Tavish's abduction. Or what support, if any, she was given to deal with that loss. Nearly every write-up of Tavish's case mentions the $600,000 she won in her suit against Grady. They call it the damages. But how that impact is measured personally, societally, is hard to figure. As Dr. Kamara Jones of Morehouse pointed out during our interview with her, there are widespread impacts of systemic inequality. The Grady babies and why they were taken and how are just a small aspect of that. As Dr. Jones explained, We need to have a strong sense of urgency that we have to dismantle this system for the good of all of us, not just those missing children or those missing babies. Because those missing children could be the ones that could have been developed a cure for cancer or whatever. I mean, the potential that is lost. We cannot afford to waste any of us. 
our wealth in this country is not in our natural resources, it's not in our technology, it's not in any, it's in our people. And we need to recognize that. Potential. Like Raymond Green, Tavis Sutton could be anywhere. Several tips came in from California, but that could have more to do with television schedules than his actual location. As in the case of Shante Alexander and Janquia Brooks, it seems as if the woman who took Tavish wanted a baby of her own, perhaps to fulfill the promise of a false pregnancy. We can only hope that that was the reason, and that he was raised safely and with love. Some have even guessed that this abductor, knowing Tavish's situation as a baby in foster care, took him for that very reason. But painting kidnapping as altruism is dangerous. Whoever this woman was, she did not have the right to make choices for Tavish Sutton or for his mother. Tavish Sutton was born February 10, 1993. At the time of his abduction, he weighed 8 pounds and was 24 inches long. He had curly black hair and brown eyes. Today, he would be 25 years old and would likely still bear a scar from the abscess operation. NICMEC has continued to provide updated age progressions of Tavish, and we encourage you to view them at missingkids.org. If you have information regarding Tavish Sutton's disappearance or his current whereabouts, please call the Atlanta Police Department at 404-658-6666. As always, Grady Memorial Hospital has declined to comment on the Brooks or Sutton kidnappings. Or on Christopher Lee, who was kidnapped in 1991. Since he was taken from the maternity ward waiting room, we'll discuss him in our next episode, which will deal with the abductors, their motives, and the techniques employed to successfully steal these children. We still have two more babies to cover and more. We'll take a look at some of the men who've claimed to be Raymond or Tavish, the current state of infant abduction, and what life is like for adults who discover they were kidnapped at birth. We hope you'll join us then.